Father, may your word be our rule. May your spirit be our guide. And above everything, we pray that Jesus Christ would be our chief concern. Even so, we pray. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Galatians chapter 4, starting at verse 21. Tell me, Paul says, tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of a divine promise. These things are being taken figuratively. The women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Be glad, barren woman. You who never bore a child, shout for joy and cry aloud. You who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now, you brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It is the same now. But what does Scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. This is uh, a fascinating passage in which Paul takes a a pretty popular, well-known story in the Old Testament. It's a story that, if you've grown up in church in, in our time, you would know about, but particularly for the Galatians at that time, it's a story that almost everyone in the church would have known, even if they were a Gentile convert. I mean, obviously, the Jewish Christians would have known the story of Sarah and, Abraham, or Sarah and Hagar quite well, but it's likely that Gentile converts would as well, simply because, remember, they didn't have the New Testament as we did. And so when they studied Scripture, they would have the Old Testament, as they would begin to learn about God and His covenant with the people and the work even of who Jesus was and, and how does He fit into the story of Israel. It would have all started with the story of Abraham and Sarah. And so Paul points to this story, and he does it in a a provocative fashion that would have grabbed his reader's attention. It would have been done in such a way that it might even have offended a good number of people, but in in that offense, it would have driven his point home. So Paul does this. He, He refers back to the story. He says, hey, remember Hagar and Sarah. Now, Sarah was Abraham's wife who was barren. So God came to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, and then also again in Genesis chapter 15, and he promises that Abraham is going to be the father of many descendants. Now what's interesting about this is when we read that in, chapter, in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, we actually are making some assumptions that when God promises that Abraham will be the father of many descendants, that it would be through his wife Sarah. I mean, that's, that's to be expected. That's, expect, that, that, that's what we would assume that would mean. But you can't really assume that from the, I mean, you can assume that, let's assume that. But the text never explicitly says that, especially in Genesis 12 and 15. 
In Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, it simply says that Abraham will be the father of many nations or will have many descendants, as many as the stars are in the sky. It isn't until Genesis 18 that we're actually told that those descendants will come through his wife, Sarai. And if you remember that story in Genesis chapter 18, it's a story in which Abraham and Sarah, they're out in the desert, uh, and these three visitors come to them. So they prepare a meal for the three visitors. Abraham is sitting down in the tent with the three visitors having this meal. Sarah is outside listening to their conversation. And the three visitors say to Abraham, your barren wife will give birth to a son. And as Sarah hears this, she laughs, right? Because it's kind of a ridiculous idea. Now, we have to remember, what's interesting here about this is the order. Abraham hears the promise of many descendants in chapter 12. It's reiterated in chapter 15. And in chapter 15, we actually looked at that passage a few weeks ago because it's reiterated with the blood path that is walked by God. So remember in chapter 15, Abraham continues to ask God, he says to God, like, okay, I hear that you're promising me descendants, but how can I know that that's true? How can I trust you in your promise? And God says, get a few animals, cut them in half, lay the halves out in two lines, let their blood pool together, and we'll make a covenant. This is how covenants were established. But instead of both parties walking the blood path, only God walks the blood path. Now, by the time that that happens in Genesis 15, the, 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 the promise of Abraham having descendants would have been given to him 10 years prior to that. So the, the time period between Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 is about a decade, a decade of waiting. Ten years of Abraham getting older, ten years of Sarah getting older. And so what happens is, remember, it isn't until verse chapter 18, right, that the promise says, okay, it's going to be through Sarah. So Genesis 12, Genesis 15, ten years period. And after ten years of waiting, Sarah suggests in chapter 16, perhaps you, Abraham, ought to lie with my Egyptian servant. And conceive a child that way. Abraham agrees. Hagar becomes pregnant. And she gives birth to a son, Ishmael. Fourteen years later, when Abraham is a hundred years old, Sarah gives birth to another son, to Isaac. Fourteen years after Ishmael, who was ten years after the promise. So we can say 24 years from the time that God came to Abraham in chapter 12 and said, you are going to be a father of many nations, to the time in which Isaac is born. Now, what's fascinating is when you look in chapter 21 at the moment in which Sarah finds out that she is with child. The text actually says, Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age. And get this, this is exactly what it says. At the very time God had promised them. When was Isaac born? At the very time that God had promised them. When did God promise to Abraham, you will be a father of many nations? 24 years prior. So, I always like, want to be really honest. And so if I'm being honest about how I feel about all of that, it doesn't feel like that promise was right on time. Right? It feels a, just, a, just a wee late. And if I was, if I was a, a, a better 
person of faith, then I could muster up with sincerity and say, well, God's time is not our time. And yes, I understand that God's time is not our time, but that's not how I would feel if I was in that situation. Right? Yes, God's time is different than our time, and God doesn't need to answer our prayers or fulfill his promises according to our whims and our calendars. But 24 years seems like a bit ridiculous when we're talking about a child being born. 24 years feels really, really late when you're talking to a woman who is already probably well beyond her childbearing years. And so when you're talking about that kind of time on something that is so big, that is something that is so important, on something that seems so improbable even from the very beginning, like let's, let's just be honest, saying God's, God's time is not our time is not necessarily a hopeful sentiment. If we're being honest in our most honest and vulnerable moments, what we would say is that actually feels very frustrating to say. And if we can acknowledge that, then I think we can see and understand Sarah's action. That after a decade of not becoming pregnant, after a decade of hearing Abraham talk about his experiences with God and what God has told me, and this is going to happen, baby, just trust me. After 10 years of that, she, she resigns her fact, herself to the fact that maybe those descendants aren't going to come through me and maybe they're going to come through someone else. So Abraham, why, why don't you lie with my servant, Hagar? And, and she watches Hagar give birth to the son that she thought was supposed to be hers. There's a whole lot we could say about that story, but Paul picks it up, and he says, you know, this whole situation, this whole story, the Abraham and, and Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael and Isaac, that whole narrative, like, we can, we can look at that, and we can take that figuratively, and we can apply it to our situation here in Galatia as the churches struggle with the relationship between the gospel and the law, right? And this is where Paul begins to get extremely provocative. He says, okay, you in Galatia, there are those of you who want to be under the law. And, and there are those who are saying that if you are a follower of Jesus, that you do in fact need to become Jewish. And in order to be truly Jewish, you need to follow the law by being circumcised and following the dietary restrictions and holding on to the special days and the feasts and the festivals and all of that. And then Paul, Paul takes this story. He says, now let, let's remember Hagar and Sarah. Remember that. Remember that. Now just for a moment, stay with me. Those who want to be under the law are Hagar's children. Now think about that. Who is Paul saying are Hagar's children? The Judaizers. Those who are arguing for the law, those who are taking pride in their heritage, those who believe we are the true sons of Abraham, we are the ones who are keeping the law, we are the people of the covenant, we are the true Jews. And Paul says, no, 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 actually, you're Hagar's son when you argue to be under the law. You are, in fact, the illegitimate children of Abraham. Do you see how that would have prickled some feathers, how that would have maybe turned some people off? Do you see how that would have upset people, caused them to sit up and say, wait, 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 did I, did I hear you right, Paul? Did you, did you just say that I, a Jew, I who is someone who is trying to keep the law, I am the one who, who is holding on to our traditions? 
that I am an illegitimate, that I'm Hagar's son? How dare you? Yeah. Now, how can Paul make this argument? How is he drawing this connection and saying those who are trying to keep the law are, in fact, Hagar's son? Like, what's he doing here? And so what we do is we look at that story and we say, okay, well, just as Ishmael is the result of Abraham and Sarah trying to experience the fulfillment of God's promises by the works of their hands, right? They're taking the situation into their hands. They're trying to fix it. They're trying to rectify it. They're trying to make that promise a reality. Just as Abraham and Sarah did that and the result was Ishmael. So those who are trying to bring about their own salvation through the works of the law are producing something ill legitimate. That's the sense in which Paul is using this story. He's saying, he's saying, listen, there are two ways to relate to Abraham and two ways to be Abraham's sons. One is right, one is wrong. One rests on the works of your own hands, the other rests on the promise of God. One is legitimate, one is illegitimate. There's two ways to relate to Abraham. Two ways to be his son. Now, here's what strikes out to me, uh, what stands out to me. If we look at the story of Abraham, and if we look at just the situation in the, in the, in the scenario that Paul is drawing up, right? We've got Hagar and Sarah, we've got Ishmael and Isaac. If we just look at the story, we see that Abraham has two sons. It seems really obvious, but like Abraham has two sons. One's brought about by his own actions. One is brought about by the promise of God. Two sons. Now, if you just stand back and you objectively look at that, you would say that the results of the works of your hand, or the work of Abraham's hand, and the work of the promise, the results are exactly the same. Right? Abraham does something by his own hands, gets a son. Abraham trusts in the promise of God, gets a son. The results are exactly the same. If we're only looking at the exterior, if we're only looking at what is quantifiable, the results are the same, yes. The exterior is the same. The surface, what we can see, is the same. It's, it's what's underneath. It's the heart's posture. It's the desire that is so different. And so again, we can take this idea figuratively and we can begin to apply, apply it to our lives. And so here's what I'll say based on that. The practice of our spiritual lives may look identical to one another and yet be motivated by a different posture in our heart. So here's what I mean. Let's imagine that there are two individuals We'll call them, we'll pick good biblical names who like to be in conflict with one another. We'll call them James and John, all right? So let's imagine that we've got James and John here, and if you look at James and John's life, they are ex almost identical, right? Especially when we measure it by faith, right? So both of them attend church most Sundays. Both of them give money to the church. Both of them serve the church in some capacity. Both study the scriptures. Both pray. Both are men of integrity and morality. From all outside quantifiable perspectives, they look the same. However, if we had the ability to put on like a special x-ray goggles that would allow us to see the motivations and the postures of the heart, we could see that they may in fact be very, very different. 
We might see that James shows up to church most Sundays, just like John, but James, James just, he feels like he's obligated to, right? Maybe he grew up in a family in which he went to church every Sunday. Maybe his social circle, everybody attends church, and he feels like if he didn't go to church on most Sundays, there would be too much social strife. There would be, it'd be it's too much of a pain, so it's just easier to go to church on Sundays like everybody else. Maybe he believes, in a sense, that he has to in order to be, be accepted by God or at least to receive some of the favor of God. Like He doesn't necessarily believe that God's going to be angry with him, but he does feel like, okay, life just goes better if I show up on church. At church on Sunday, like God blesses me, God uh, favors me, whatever, you know, it keeps, keeps the evil things at bay, and so James shows up most Sundays. But if we were to look at the heart of John, we would see that John shows up to church on most Sundays because there's just no other place that he would rather be. That there's this, under, like there's this, this response, like God has moved in John's life that to be with brothers and sisters and to raise voices in song is, is the thing that he desires at the beginning of every week. There's this bent to be the body of Christ and to see it gathered together and to come around the table that, that isn't driven by expectations or obligations. It's just this desire of, I want that. I need that. And you can see, like, the surface, the quantifiable, they're the same. But the heart is very different. Or maybe we look at tithing, right? They're giving to the church, and both James and John are giving to the church, but James does it because God commands it, and it feels like if I give, then God will give back to me, right? There's this transactional nature to how James gives his money, or maybe, maybe he doesn't even really want to give it. He could think of so many other things that he would rather do with it, but there's sort of this begrudging, ah, it's what I have to do, otherwise God will get angry with me. But John, John gives because he is captivated by the idea that the church's mission is to reach out to lost people just like he was once lost and he wants to see those people come and so he's going to give his money generously and with joy maybe John does it because he recognizes that that everything is God's and this isn't mine anyways and so I'm going to give it and I'm going to trust it to the church that together corporately we're going to figure out how to use this money better so that we can be the new body of Christ in the world and again we can see exteriorly it's exactly the same they're both giving to the church but the motivation the heart's posture. It's very, very different. And we could run down the list for all of those things, all of the quantifiable things, right? Like, they're both people of integrity. And they could be motivated by completely different things. And so on the surface, our actions, the actions of our spiritual life may look exactly the same, but underneath there's, an, there's a desire, there's an, there's an affection towards God that is completely different. This is what Paul, I think, is driving at when he talks about the sons and daughters of Hagar versus the sons and daughters of Sarah. The sons and daughters of Hagar are those who are motivated by the law. They show up, they participate, they're moral, but only because the law demands it of them. Only because that's how, you, how they think they earn God's favor. But the sons of Abraham, the legitimate sons of Abraham, the Isaacs, Delight in God because they recognize the promise has already been given to them. 
And because of that, they experience freedom. Because they don't feel like they have to appease God. They recognize that God already knows them and loves them. And the promise is already theirs. Now, let me also say this. I think whenever we talk about this thing, we kind of throw up two options. Like you can, be, you can either be an Ishmael or you can be an Isaac. I think it's very easy for us to want to fall into simple binaries and say, well, either I'm an Isaac or I am an Ishmael. I'm either all law or I'm all gospel. I get it. They don't, right? This is what we like to do. We like to draw the easy binaries and put the line in the sand and figure out which side we're on and which side others are on. But I think the reality that we have to acknowledge is that all of us are an Isaac at some level and all of us are an Ishmael at some level. There are places in our lives where the gospel reigns, where we can give and receive grace, and then there are places in our lives where it's law, and we feel like we have to earn it. And so maybe that looks like, like, I can extend grace and forgiveness to others with ease. Like, I understand that people are flawed and that people make mistakes. I understand that sometimes our intentions are, are off kilter just a little bit. Or maybe we have the best of intentions, but we end up stepping on toes. And so when people do that, like, I can give grace to people. And I don't hold grudges. And I offer forgiveness very easily when it's all about others. But when it comes to myself, I'm overly critical. I demand perfection. And I beat myself up every time I screw up, and I do not see how I deserve grace. I'm an Isaac on the one hand, I'm an Ishmael on the other. Or maybe, maybe I'm generous with my money, and I can, just, I can just give away freely because God has given so freely to me. But when I see that parent losing control of their kids in the line at the grocery store, I am as critical as ever. And I'm an Isaac, and I'm an Ishmael. And these contradictions exist within us. And we have to acknowledge that. We have to acknowledge it, and then we have to begin to ask ourselves the question, how do we continually learn to trust in the promise of God and not in our own strength and our ability? In other words, how do we become more of an Isaac in all of our lives, more of a son or a daughter of the promise? And I think the answer to that is actually found in Paul's quotation of Isaiah 54, right? So if you want to read that, go, if you still have your Bibles open, Look at verse 27. If you don't have your Bible open, that's fine. I'm going to reread it. But in verse 27, Paul quotes from Isaiah 54. He says this, For it is written, Be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Shout for joy and cry aloud, you who are never in labor. Because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now, that seems like a strange place to find hope. But if we, I think if we stop and we think about it and we really examine this passage, we will see that there is hope for us who tend towards Ishmaelness in some of our lives. In ancient times, a woman's worth was often judged by her ability to bear children, right? So if you were able to provide children, you had value to the community, to your husband. You secured your place within the family structure, within the communal structure. It, it provided a certain level of stability, right? And, and, and just, let, 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 I won't go there. There's a whole other sermon right there I could preach on that. But if you weren't able to have children, 
right? If you were barren, now all of a sudden you became a liability. You became a liability to the family. You become someone who is disgraced within the community. And you were looked at as, as a failure, right? Add to that context, just the context of being a woman in those times. Add to that the context of which Isaiah is writing this passage. It's 1,200 years after the time of Abraham, but it's 600 years before the time in which Paul writes the letter to the church in Galatia. And at that time, in that window right there, Israel is in exile in Babylon, right? Babylonians have come in, they've conquered them, they've been exiled to Babylon, the people have been dispersed, the national life, the Jewish, the Israeli national life is over at that point, the temple is destroyed, right? And the temple in the Jewish mind is the place where heaven and earth come together, the temple is heaven on earth, and now that's been destroyed. In other words, heaven is not here, God has abandoned us, we've been ripped from our homes, we feel like we may never get to go back to our country again, we may never have the splendor that we once did in the past, we as a people, we as a nation, we are a group of failures. And it's into that situation that Isaiah prophesies. Be glad. Be glad, barren woman, you who have never borne a child, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. In other words, God is saying to Israel, God is saying to us, I will redeem you in your failure. Out of your shame, I will bring confidence. Where you are broken, I will bring wholeness. You see the hope within this passage. The gospel is for the barren. The gospel is for the failure. The gospel is for the ashamed. The gospel is for the infertile. The gospel is for the beat up. The gospel is for the humble. And freedom is found in our ability to embrace and to own and to be honest about our own barrenness. Those places in our lives where we tend to gloss over what's really going on. Those places in our lives where we feel the need to paint a better picture than the way it really is. Those places in our lives where for whatever reason we fail to admit our pain or our grief, those places where we work so hard to appear strong when we're struggling to hold it together. Those barren places of our lives, those are the places in which when we fail to own it, embrace it, and be honest about it, when we fail to do that, we are still slaves trying to save ourselves by our own strength. We're sons and daughters of Hagar. Because what the gospel tells us is that freedom is found in weakness. Freedom is found in weakness. Like, I feel like I could say that. 
over and over again. Freedom is found in weakness. And we'd sit there and go, yeah, 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 that's true. Yeah, I've heard that before in church. Yeah, yeah, I've heard Paul say that when I'm weak, then Jesus is strong. Yeah, 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 I get that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But can we just, like, slow, slow down moving past that idea? Freedom is found in weakness. How many of us are comfortable allowing ourselves to be seen as weak? How many of us show up at a job interview? Yeah, I'm the weakest one that you're going to interview all day long. Like, when you put a chain together, like, I'm the one that's going to break. Like, right? How many of us really think that, like, weakness is the thing that provides freedom? Right? Because in, in our world, in the world in which we live, freedom is actually found by being strong. Free, it, because that's what's true in politics, right? The, the, the winner in politics is the strong one. The winner in the war is the strong one. The winner, the winner in, 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 the, in the sporting arena is the strong one. The, 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 the celebrity, the one who gets pictures taken of them, the one who rises to the top, they're the ones who's strong. They're the one who can take it all on. They're the one who can do all the things. They're the, they're, that's what we understand. We don't understand freedom in weakness. That makes no sense. It truly is foolishness in our society. But, but the gospel has always been that freedom is found in weakness. And I think one of the reasons it's hard for us to wrap our minds around this is because so often freedom, the freedom that comes through weakness is seen in the small things in life. It's rarely seen in the big and the splendor, right? It's, it's, it's rarely seen in the things that make headlines. It's rarely seen in the things that, that make big splashes in our world. No, the freedom that's found in weakness often looks like a small group of people meeting in a church basement, sitting on folding chairs, admitting their addictions. There's something about the freedom that's found in that weakness that is otherworldly. The freedom that's found in weakness also often looks like the one individual who's been struggling under depression and anxiety who finally admits that they need some help. That kind of freedom it doesn't make headlines, but that kind of freedom is, is otherworldly. Freedom, freedom found in weakness looks like the small group that's been meeting together for, for perhaps even years, and they've done, it's been good and it's been great, but then suddenly one day one of the couples finally admits that their marriage isn't what it's supposed to be, that they're struggling, that they're not even sure that they're going to make it, and they begin to ask for help in the midst of their weakness. And that level of vulnerability binds the group together with a new kind of intimacy. Like, that kind of, that kind of weakness provi- provides a freedom that's, that's uncommon to us. And it's often in those small places, the ordinary places, the places that don't make huge splashes. Like if we pay attention there, then we can see the truth of this gospel reality. Freedom is found in the barren, desolate places of our lives. And so the question for you and the question for me that we have to answer is, where are we refusing to be seen as weak? Where are we tenaciously trying to fix it by ourselves? 
Where are we hiding? Like what parts of our lives, what parts of our, 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 our being are we, are, we, are we working to hide from people because we want to keep up the appearance that we are strong? Is if we can lay those questions on top of our lives, they act as a diagnostic that allow us to see those places where we're still sons, of, sons and daughters of Hagar. We're still under the law. And in some ways, we're choosing it. Right? That's how Paul starts out this passage. You who are choosing or wanting to be under the law. And if you were to ask us, not one of us would say, yeah, I'd like to be under the law. I'd like to be under a list of 600 some odd laws that I have to keep perfectly. Like, none of us would say that. But I'm guessing... I'm guessing that each and every one of us has some places where we where we're still choosing. I want to be under the law in this place because I don't want to appear weak, to look like I don't have it all together. I don't want to admit that I'm barren because I would have to admit this grief. I don't trust that others would come alongside of me. I'm not sure that God would even fulfill his promise, right? Like there's a whole list of reasons as to why why we choose to continue to be Ishmael's. And if we want to live more as sons of Sarah, sons and daughters of the promise, then it begins by opening ourselves up, admitting our barrenness with a kind of authenticity, an authenticity with God, an authenticity with ourselves, and an authenticity with others that maybe is new. Or maybe that authenticity isn't necessarily new. We're really good at it in, per, in practice places of our lives. But there are other places in our lives where well, we don't allow that same level of authenticity to go there. But we be... We begin to. Maybe, maybe today is the start. And in doing so, it renews our passion, it renews our affection, it renews our gratitude for the gospel of Jesus Christ, which sets us free. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that each and every one of us has been invited and even called to be sons and daughters of the promise, to be set free from the law, to be set free from having to prove ourselves and be worthy, and, and simply we can be children who are loved because the Father has chosen to love us. We give you thanks for that. We give you thanks for Jesus, the fulfillment of the law who sets us free. And I pray that that freedom would be experienced in our lives. I, I pray that that freedom would begin to, to erode and creep into the, the barren, desolate places of our lives. And in those places, fruit would grow up. And I pray for the courage to be authentic about our need for the gospel in the different areas of our lives. I pray for the courage to be authentic about, 
to be authentic about the places in which we are already experience God's grace and the places in our lives where we yet to. And we give you thanks that in all of this, you are the one who is wooing us into deeper intimacy with you. Christ, our Lord. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.